We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. This week, I am so pleased to welcome back to the podcast a very talented, supportive, and funny friend. Currently based in Newark, Delaware, Mitchell Beaupre is not only the senior editor at one of my favorite services via Letterboxd, but they're also the co-host of the Weekend Watch List and co-host of Four Favorites podcasts, which you can find in the stream for the Letterboxd show. Additionally, a prolific freelance film journalist and stellar interviewer for prestigious outlets such as The Film Stage, Paste Magazine, The Playlist, and Little White Lies. You can keep up with all of their impressive work on Twitter at it is Mitchell. Mitchell, thank you so much for returning today to talk about one of our true actor loves, Mr. Willem Dafoe. But before we go into his career and get good and lost in the world of Willem, I would love to know how you're doing and how this year's treated you since we did our Jim Jarmish episode. So what is new? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Definitely very excited to be back. Feels like, I mean, at like the same time, it feels like just yesterday we were doing the Jarmish thing, but it also feels like I've been, you know, waiting for months for us to get back together and do this. So very excited, very fun going through all these movies and like watching some rewatching and watching some of his other ones just for like context and everything. Yeah, really. Yeah, like the best subject. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm doing good. We're recording this like the end of November um, going into December. So very busy with like end of year stuff. I'm also, as I told you, like right before we started recording, I'm moving in a couple weeks. So like super busy with that on top of I picked like the weirdest time to move because it's like December doing like the job that I have and everything. It's like the craziest time of the year with like yeah. all the like end of year kind of everything. Um, I'm like, yeah, I'll just do like a huge move at the same time. But, you know, it's it's all good stuff. It'll in January, I'll feel great. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and congratulations. You were telling me off air, this is going to be your first apartment. So um, are you excited? Is there anything you're really looking forward to with your own place? 
I'm yeah yeah so it's it's gonna be my first time living completely on my own and I'm very excited to just like like I've never had a place that I've lived in whether it's like my parents or roommates or whatever I've never had a place where I'm just like like I'm very um by myself I'm a very like isolating kind of person so sure. I've pretty much always just lived in my bedroom right like I never like really live in like a living room I, it's like crazy for me to think of the fact that like my living room is gonna be like my space that I can yeah. just like watch like I'm literally gonna watch movies in my living room and not have a TV in my room in my bedroom anymore and like that's that's exciting it's weird to like it's one of those things that I can't really visualize until I'm in there but yeah there's a lot that I'm excited for but how how are you doing how are you are you doing anything for like the holidays or anything like that I am really good. I'm looking forward to as I told you before like taking some time to slow down a little bit the kind of the research and writing grind of doing the podcast. I love all the conversations, of course. This is my favorite part yeah. of it. But it's the prep work that kind of gets to be a day in, day out yeah. thing. So it'll be nice to kind of recharge the batteries, take some time, do some writing. But no, when I was thinking about um, what you were saying there with your own apartment and having the family room, I was remembering in my early 20s, I should tell everyone listening, first of all, I'm the worst cook in the world. So <laughs> Many, many people, I, I think if one person gave me a plant, but then like family, friends, relatives, coworkers, everybody gave me a cookbook. And it's kind of like, you <laughs> get the point already. Yeah. Like, you know, let's just order some takeout. We'll go to a nice <laughs> restaurant, whatever. And so that was kind of funny. But as far as having your own family room, it is awesome. Because I remember um, I was starting film school, and it was kind of a design your own curriculum thing. And so like the first week when I really sank in that, hey, this whole place is mine, I was watching yeah. like the cook, the thief, his wife, her lover in the family room. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I can just straight up watch this. And I don't have to worry about somebody walking in and going, what the hell is on the mm -hmm. TV? <laughs> and so, you know, it, it helped out. I was writing my thesis on like sex lies and videotape. Boy, I'm going to sound really twisted when this airs. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying is you can enjoy the weirdness or you can enjoy like, hey, it's two in the morning. I'm watching Singing in the Rain. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Not having to worry about like the sound or whatever. You you mentioning that about the cook the thief. Like I remember speaking of Willem Dafoe when Antichrist came out. Like yes. I remember watching it in my bedroom and being like like the whole time being on edge, worried that like my dad was gonna like gonna knock on my door in. and need me for something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm super stoked for that. And yeah, just being able to kind of freely walk around. I'm somebody who likes to pace a lot. That's like a big like yes. part of my like process. I just while like thinking, I just mm -hmm. pace and really like zone out and stuff. But it's hard to do that in just like a, a bedroom like it'll be nice to be able to do that in a whole apartment and have like the whole space to myself yeah that is so awesome I can't wait to check in and see what's going on so what have you been working on lately is there anything recently or soon to be released or published that you'd like to recommend we check out or in case we've missed it yeah sure thanks so much for asking um I I've been doing some stuff lately. Um, I just yesterday from when we we're recording this, I had a piece published at Pace that's about um Tamara Jenkins' movie The Savages from 2007 okay. with a uh, Philip sure. Seymour Hoffman and Laura Linney. And it's it's a bit of like a personal piece. It uses the movie to kind of dive into like my own uh family, my like relationships with my family, which are often kind of like estranged. I have you know, stuff from the past, but then also like sure. present and future and everything. I have a sister who I haven't spoken to in like over a decade. And wow. so it, 
it got pretty uh, personal. And I'm really glad that um, Jacob Oler, the movie's editor at Pace, um, I'm really glad that he was interested in me writing it. He was like very enthusiastic about it when I pitched it to him. And he's he's a phenomenal editor, like just to shout him out a little bit. He really is like super supportive. And Aww, that's good. like all of his feedback is really encouraging. And anytime with it being like a really personal piece, every bit of feedback, he would like come back to me and be like, does this feel all right to you? Like if we, oh, you know, change nice. this around a little bit rather than yeah. just like making a bunch of changes and me not even seeing it until it goes up or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's if people good. want to check that out, that would be really nice. Um, also, exciting for um, you and me especially, because you and I, as we discussed on the Jarmish episode, we first met doing Cinephile Game Night with the film stage. And yes. tomorrow, um, on the Letterbox show, the Four Favorites um, Letterbox show, Corey Everett, the creator of Cinephile, is going to oh, come on wonderful. as one of our guests to talk about his four favorite movies and some new like children's books that uh cinephiles putting out so very excited for that um that'll be out like next um yeah, next tuesday from when we're recording this i'm not sure exactly when this episode is going to drop but so it might be up it'll be dropping this week probably so that'll be great. okay cool yeah, so Corey, yeah perfect timing yeah Corey is wonderful he sent me advanced um pdfs of those children's books and they look so, so good yeah. oh my god they're so gorgeous i just want to frame them on my wall <laughs> i know french new wave film noir i mean he's covering like my favorite stuff but yeah. doing so for kids uh through the alphabet the the art is fabulous mm. in them and he will be um coming on watch with jen at towards the beginning of season four. So I'm really excited about that. We're going to probably tackle one of the topics of those children's books. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I can't wait. We had so much fun playing Cinephile Game Night together. Yeah. And I kind of um, started, first it started kind of as a regimented, okay, we're going to get together with friends and like play movie games. And now it's more of a free-for-all hangout thing where <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some of my friends and I just we just kind of sit around and watch Rob Belushi do impressions, which is always good. <laughs> yes, but um, but yeah, so a lot of um credit to Corey for putting together this game and inspiring so many friendships and so much fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's wonderful. I have yeah regular kind of game nights with friends where we do over Zoom or whatever, but it's turned into sort of the same the same thing where we like get on with the intention of doing it. And then it's like four hours later and we have not started a single game, but yes. it's, it's exactly that. Like the, the game brings people together who love movies yeah. to talk about things and build like genuine friendships, which is really beautiful. It really is. Well, I know there's a lot to get to today when it comes to our topic or actor du jour, Willem Dafoe. So we should probably dive in a character mm -hmm. actor with over 40 years and well over 100 movies of experience to his name and a four time Oscar nominee for the films Platoon, Shadow of the Vampire, The Florida Project and At Eternity's Gate. Willem Dafoe is a chameleon-like Marvel and workaholic who loves getting out there every day and doing the work or mixing it up. He always likes to say that. like He's a <laughs> boxer. He calls himself a man who likens himself to a nomad or a gunslinger kind of the cowboy mentality, which is also kind of fun. He balances art house and indie fair with these big studio movies that we're going to talk about all of it today. I know we first bonded over our shared love of Light Sleeper, 
which I'm covering mm. in season four with Megan Abbott on our Paul Schrader episode. But we also cherish him in so many other movies. Before we get into the films you selected today of To Live and Die in L.A., The Last Temptation of Christ, Spider-Man, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, 444, Last Day on Earth, and The Florida Project. I would love to know if you remember the movie that first hooked you or impressed you with Defoe, or what it is about him that's always been so captivating to watch, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question because when when we decided on doing this and I like had to think about like the fact that, oh, we're going to be talking at, in like a specific sense, but in a larger sense too, about Willem Defoe, I realized that I've never like tried to put into words what it is exactly about him specifically that makes him like my favorite actor like I've written about Light Sleeper or I've written about mm -hmm. Florida Project or like you know so many of his movies where I've talked about individual performances and why like they grab me but I've never had to really think about just what it is about him overall that makes me so drawn to him and I think that in thinking about it it's this interesting thing where he is like he's one of those actors who who is a chameleon he is a character actor he is like it's it's so weird because there are those actors that are like a very specific type right where you're casting a you know so and so type or whatever for a movie yeah. and i feel like people could pigeonhole defoe into being a type because a lot of his bigger roles are like the villainous kind of things mm -hmm. where like the spider-man or the loveless or something like that wild at heart where he's playing these very like bombastic villains and that's certainly where i first encountered him and what i perceived him as initially but when you really get into all of the movies that he's done the light sleeper i mean the, all of the straighter stuff affliction as well is yeah. a great autofocus is a great one as well mm -hmm. where he like he really has a sort of poetry to him as well. He has this like interiority to him and he just goes in so many different directions. And I think the thing that I kept coming back to the most with the foe that I love is the word unpredictable, which yes. I think not a lot of actors really have that thing. Like a lot of actors, you know that they're playing a certain character and you kind of know what to expect with them. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes that can be great. Like you cast, you know, Robert De Niro and Heat is a phenomenal performance, but I feel like you cast him in that movie and you kind of know what it's going to be. And he like nails it, I, especially, I mean, even more Pacino and Heat maybe is maybe even a better example of that. But even like watching a Willem Dafoe performance and you're, 15 minutes into the movie and you've seen him acting so you kind of get a sense of what he's doing with the character there still can be a moment 10 minutes later that he does something whether it's even just like a small little character choice that mm -hmm. is completely out of nowhere and I feel that constantly with him and it's so exciting to watch him act because even going back through re-watching some of these movies like re-watching Spider-Man a movie that I've seen probably 20 times <laughs> I watch certain scenes and like I've seen them so many times before and I still feel that like jolt of excitement of oh, yeah. watching him like a moment that I didn't expect yeah. the Thanksgiving scene oh, I wrote God. like a whole diatribe in my notes of the Thanksgiving scene <laughs> but yeah it's and that, that scene is exactly that's such a great like uh, a, a singular example of that that quantity of him where it is quality of him where it's the scene goes in so many different directions it's like such a roller coaster of watching his performance he's like 
perceptive. He's weirdly sexual, kind of in it. Yeah, he's very funny in it. Though, like from the yeah. beginning, there's just something really carnal about him, or he has yeah. that. He accesses that well, like very often. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh my god, it's so good. But what I know for you, so I've, I've you've talked before about Platoon being kind of like the big like fulcrum point for you of like where you really were introduced to him and fell in love with him, where you saw it like younger than your your parents would have wanted you to see platoon but was that kind of the one where you like immediately were like i love this guy or did it take a little bit more like some more films before he became like such like a a a huge name for you um well i i was eight years old and my dad and my uncle were watching platoon in the family room and they basically said you know stay in the kitchen with your older brother (laughs) and just color and mm-hmm. we were used to watching stuff we shouldn't. Like, I think I'd already seen Die Hard at that point. And for whatever mm-hmm. reason, Die Hard gave me nightmares, but Platoon didn't. I, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> but um, my brother and I just kept, like, sneaking back in the family room um, because, you know, you hear that Elgar music and mm-hmm. um, just you, you just see, like, how transported your your dad and your, your favorite <laughs> uncle are watching this movie and you're like i gotta know what the, what's going on and so we would just creep in and kind of on opposite sides of the couch sort of like peer around yeah. <laughs> and i don't know if it's because this was also like the 80s and so gi joe was a really popular thing mm. animated wise so i didn't really have the politics down or didn't know the language or what was really happening on that level but i remember um being very like lightened and happy and also just sensing the perceptive shift in the room like with my dad and uncle watching whenever defoe's character Mm -hmm. was on screen you could just like feel like okay we can breathe now Mm-hmm. And then um, the end was so devastating, of course, you know, spoiler alert. But uh, but yeah, I remember that, of course. Um, and then years later, I started to see him and other stuff. But I remembered that early sort of exposure to Defoe. It's kind of interesting. My um, another like the first theatrical film that I saw that with live actors that I remember was Moonstruck. And I was completely taken in in first grade by like Nicolas Cage. And so I was like this weird kid who had a thing for character actors. (laughs) Like, you know, you get into fourth grade and you're like, well, I know who Forrest Whitaker is. He's in Platoon. (laughs) And so, you know, I was like about those, like by the time I got into middle school, it's like, let's talk about De Niro and up with Luke Perry Mm -hmm. and Jason Priestley. Like, who cares? (laughs) Let's talk about these guys. Yeah. And so I do kind of credit uh my weird childhood for that but yeah defoe i mean i thought he was always just interesting when he would show up in things you didn't know what he was going to do i remember clear and present danger being an early Mm -hmm. one in the early 90s um light sleeper as well i was just immediately taken in by that film i thought it was so good i don't know why um again if it was music or what it was i think dana delaney uh, being in it was also appealing because I love China Beach when I was little. Mm. So these were early things that I remember with Defoe for sure. 
yeah god damn delaney she does not get enough credit for how good she is in that movie she's wonderful yeah just rewatching it like multiple times over this year and like she when i initially watched late sleeper it was all about like willem dafoe susan sarandon as well who's like so good in it but yeah the more that i watch it the more i keep coming back to dana delaney as and it obviously like it almost seems too obvious because she is the turning point in that movie for him. And like, mm-hmm. she's the one who kind of awakens him in so many ways, but she's so good in it. Yeah. Ugh. She replied to something I wrote once about the film on wow. Twitter. And she said it was like still one of her best professional experiences ever. Yeah. Ugh. And so that was nice to hear. Yeah. Especially because I think the one she favored it, I was pointing out some of the things like the Mary and the Marianne and some of the little mm-hmm. overlaps. And so I think she appreciated those like intellectual ones. But then I had a couple thirsty Willem Dafoe things, <laughs> namely just to make people laugh. Some of my jokey things on the timeline about, you know, like, uh, you know, the cinematography, uh, Robbie Mueller and all of that stuff. And then you've got, um, you know, Defoe shirtless all the time. And I made some kind of joke about that. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was great. You know? yeah. yeah, it's it's always a little odd, like when like writing something or having somebody respond where you in the back of your head, you know that there is the scene in the movie where she says the very Paul Schrader line of I'm so wet right now yes. during a sex scene with Willem Dafoe. <laughs> I feel like that like it's it's such like a I don't know if it's like juvenile or something, but I, when I interview like actors and like I know that there's there's like very explicit scenes mm-hmm. in the movie that I'm interviewing them for. There's like a little like. I don't know, like a dissonance or something for me with that. But I don't know if that's just me being like unprofessional or just like weird or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's embarrassing. Like if you it's it's also how you approach it. Like if you said, hey, I saw that movie and you were, you you don't (laughs) want to be like lascivious and really creepy about it. But, you know, (laughs) if it's a good performance, bring it up, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I have an actor friend who I brought up a film that he made that I thought it was a great performance, but I I didn't even think of the fact that there are some love scenes in the movie when I was Mm -hmm. talking to him and he got very like you could tell embarrassed. Right. Uh, Yeah. yeah. But, um, (laughs) you know, yeah, he wanted to change the subject immediately. (laughs) So it just kind of depends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since there's so much ground to cover, I thought it might be best to keep the film introductions minimal and tackle Mm -hmm. these selections two at a time and perhaps treat them as eras in Defoe's career or different shades of paint or facets of his personality, evidence of his range, basically as romantic or philosophical as we want to get here, Mitchell. So with this in mind, we're starting with Willem Defoe playing Polar Opposites in the 1980s as basically the sexiest and most dangerous counterfeiter you would ever want to meet in William Friedkin's 1985 movie To Live and Die in L.A. and as Jesus Christ in the controversial (laughs) 1988 Martin Scorsese film The Last Temptation of Christ, which was based on the similarly incendiary 1955 novel by Nikos Kazantzakis. That's a good question. <laughs> I'm hoping it's Kazantzakis. Um, Kazantzakis. I apologize if I'm butchering that all to hell. I am a huge fan of To Live and Die in LA, less so of Last Temptation, but I do find it really, really fascinating and that it is his second 80s Christ-like figure coming mm-hmm. two years after his incredible Oscar-nominated performance in Oliver Stone's masterpiece, Platoon. 
So let's get into both. I will let you take it away any way you want to do so and explore the 80s rise of this remarkable actor. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a great pairing because they are complete opposites. Yes. And I feel so definitive in kind of how that spread of him can go because he was really on a run in that early era of doing the villain kind of thing. And I think he's talked about it before too of not wanting to of being like worried about getting pigeonholed as yes. the villain guy because yeah, the loveless obviously was his first like major movie if we don't count heaven's gate which he got fired off he of got fired was a background yeah. extra and, yeah um, <laughs> and then to live and die in la was like he i mean it's huge now and was really talked about then too and he's such a great villain and i love that you use sexy as a descriptor for his performance in it because watching it is really remarkable he has this like like very bisexual energy to him yes. like there's not any yeah. like him with men in it but uh, like he brings a woman Super to be with erotic. his yeah. girlfriend yeah and he just has this like he has little moments of like homoeroticism with william mm -hmm. peterson in it that i think are very suggestive and very exciting oh, yeah. to watch and it's a movie where like I to live and die to live and die in LA, like full disclosure, is my favorite movie that we're gonna be talking about today, like of the six that we're like focusing oh, yeah, on. I agree with you. Yep. Yeah, it's it's Absolutely. one of my favorite movies of all time. And I think one of the things that's so exciting about it is the like dynamic shift between how they portray him versus how they portray William Peterson's Secret yes. Service agent, who's the lead mm -hmm. of the movie, and the fact that like over the course of the movie we're seeing Peterson's character like unraveling more and more. It becomes very clear that he's this like adrenaline junkie. He's on this yep. mission of revenge because Defoe killed his partner. Mm -hmm. And like it, it is really just like this addiction for him. Whereas Defoe's character is very calm, very cool, very collected. He, one of the things I love about Defoe is that um, I feel like a kinship with him and both of us being like pale, redhead, yeah. like small in stature <laughs> kind of people. And he he exudes this like intimidating quality about him, even into Live and Die in L.A., where he's not he's not playing uh, like Bobby Peru and Wild at Heart, where he like Lynch give, gave him those like teeth and like slicks back his hair in like a really like nasty yeah, way. And he just John Watersy. Yeah. 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 John. Yeah. John Waters. Exactly. Where he's like very overt, like physically in mm -hmm. his like villainous quality to live and die to live and die in L.A. He's like so cool the whole time. But, you know, that this is a guy who can turn on you in a second and like yep. i mean shotgun blast you four times like I it's know. it's such an unnerving quality to him but yeah pairing it putting it up against last temptation of christ is like going in the total opposite direction but in both of them he he brings such like dimensionality to those roles because last mm -hmm. temptation of christ he he goes in so many directions with it where he's playing christ as almost an addict himself in like being addicted to the the kind of fervor that's being drummed up around him and getting attached yeah. to that like messiah quality to him and not wanting to let it go so it, it's interesting to pair the two of them together how do you feel about kind of the two of them right next to each other like that well it's interesting i was reading scorsese on scorsese a little bit today mm -hmm. in preparation one of my favorite film books like one of the first ones i remember buying um yeah. And actually, Scorsese brought up that it was to live and die in L.A. that kind of made him think 
of Willem Dafoe, he was originally thinking about Aidan Quinn, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Quinn had some issues with um, his own religious ideas and also the character, and he wasn't 100% on board. Eric Roberts and Christopher Walken were also kind of heavily considered as possible um, Jesus um, actors for this. And it was to live and die in LA. He just thought even in 19, you know, the early 80s, like there was something about this guy. And he said the thing that sold it, though, was Platoon, because he is mm-hmm. basically <laughs> playing. I mean, even right in the script, it's it's he's playing like the good angel versus. Yeah, the, yeah the I love I rewatched Platoon uh, for the for recording this like the first time in like 10 years I had seen it. And I totally forgot there's like a scene where John C. McGinley literally says like Wild about Walker. the first character. Yeah. Like and like he this guy thinks he's Jesus Christ or something. And I'm yes. like, oh, OK, they just really put it out there. <laughs> they just completely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's another daddy issue movie like yeah. you know, Stone loves his daddy issues. And, um, you know, of course, with this, you got the father. And yeah, they're even calling him the a water walker and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it's it's very overt. And so that was the, like the ultimate selling point was he did that, got the nomination. And Scorsese was like, nope that's going to be jesus um but bringing it back to to live and die uh it's one of my favorites actually i remember when i wrote about it like ages ago sent the blu-ray that was the first time i saw it um i must have done something right because Friedkin like shared the article and then started to follow me and wow he is an intimidating guy if you write something and he doesn't like it you will hear from him (laughs) just from like what i've heard from my colleagues like uh he's tracked down phone numbers he's done some things and so i was just like oh okay he actually liked what I wrote this is okay um but I love it so much I you know it is I thought it was me finding like the whole sequence with the counterfeiting money sexy but -hmm. it was funny I like shared it recently and Priscilla Page who is uh everybody knows on Twitter brilliant writer and a very good friend she she just kind of replied to me and she goes now is it me or is that super sexy and you know, <laughs> i was like thank you yes it is like yeah. it's weird to say it like that but it is <laughs> but he kind of infuses every single thing he does in that movie with this weird carnality where you don't exactly know like who he's checking out or you mm. know he's He's basically Richard Gere in American Gigolo, but Perfect. like the counterfeiter version of that is kind mm-hmm. of like you can almost, um, you know, bring it to Schrader again a little bit. Yeah. He just yeah. kind of has that sort of quality. Like maybe Schrader watched this movie and is like, ah, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. It's because it's like not overt to like you've seen we've all seen movies where people are trying way too hard to be like sexy or sexual and i think gear gear is a really great example of somebody who does it very subtly and like just kind of owns being this like sexual god in american Mm -hmm. gigolo and i think yeah (laughs) defoe does that so well too and it's it's great because when you like you could just feel like that's like his natural presence but then you watch his other movies and like it's clearly something he was turning on like for that performance Mm -hmm. specifically and i feel like the loveless he's got that too as well so maybe in like his early days he was like really feeling himself he was coming he was coming in strong yeah Um, from the theater you know (laughs) yeah like maybe maybe he said yeah i got fired from my first job yeah yeah (laughs) oh my 
my god have you seen there's those videos of him like in like the actor studio or whatever or like yeah like the worcester group and stuff when he's like really young he's got like his hair is just so long and like layered and flowing (laughs) like oh he's just such a gorgeous young man i know like my partner sam had not like didn't have an awareness of him like before like 2000 when we first started okay. dating like they they kind of knew who he was in his work but didn't know his earlier stuff so the first time that i was watching light sleeper when they were around they were like oh, that's wow. willem dafoe like you see those <laughs> like the cheekbones and just yeah. like what a fresh face he has in those early days but still yeah like to live and die to live and die in la he was like almost like 30 like just like a little bit under 30 i think when they made that and mm-hmm. he still just exudes like this like like if I'm 32 right now and I can't imagine me being as like menacing and as like self-assured yeah, as so he comes confident. off in that mm-hmm. movie too. Yeah. And then you juxtapose that with Last Temptation of Christ where like the the guts it takes to play Jesus Christ in a movie when you're like you just turned 30, you're you have your first Oscar nomination, right? But you haven't even been working in Hollywood for a decade at that point. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that just really takes so much guts and you know what a big deal this is. You're working with Scorsese. You, yeah, yeah it's just it's such a huge movie. And then I love the stories of him. Like I was reading Entertainment Weekly did an interview with him around the uh, the 30th anniversary a few years ago. And he talked about like being surprised at the response to it because they were just off on their own like shooting this movie it was like so low budget they like didn't have access they didn't have trailers or anything yeah and so they were just like in their own little world like making this movie and then he like comes back to america and it's just like like somebody on the street is just like hey man you know you're in a lot of trouble for that one and he's just like confused by the sensation that that movie became and it is really odd to like look back on it now because i feel like movies don't really get like drummed up with that kind of like sensationalism and that kind of like people literally protesting it people burning Death down threats. like movie yeah. theaters yeah because they were playing it blockbuster wouldn't even mm-hmm. hold the movie when it came out on video it's just it feels like being transported to a totally different time yeah, I heard some stories about the making of it uh, from John Lurie. I haven't read his memoir yet, so I'm not sure like what's on the record and what isn't. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to get into it. But yeah, it sounds like it was kind of almost like a theatrical, wild, freewheeling, you know, shoot where they were just enjoying themselves and then came back and it was like, what? Yes. Yeah. Um, but getting back to uh, him being so young and having all of this confidence, I think another secret with um, Defoe and also The Loveless being his first like official credit, he grew up around, if I remember correctly, like five sisters. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, The Loveless was Monty Montgomery and Catherine Bigelow. And so he was very in touch with female gays. He talks very fondly about his sisters, but he said, like, they're even more sexually demented than men. Like (laughs) he was saying, you know, like, these women can eat you alive, essentially talking (laughs) about his sisters. And so I think he was just completely comfortable with his feminine side. And I think Mm. that also kind of helped you see a feminine side in To Live and Die in L.A. You see some Mm -hmm. sensitivity that I think then carries over very well with um, The Last Temptation of Christ. He is remarkable in it. I think, um, you know, he works so well. 
people kind of have made jokes over the years about, um, is it Mean Streets, the Bible version? You know, like there's all right. kinds of oh, jokes Harvey about Harvey Keitel's it. performance. Yeah, yeah <laughs> poor Harvey Keitel getting a Razzie nomination and that kind of thing. And you talk to Scorsese about it, and I guess he will say he purposely wanted to have people with different accents mm-hmm. um, just to kind of rep you know um be representative of a lot of different stories and how jesus is for everyone and so you do have quite a mixed group of people going on in this movie I mean, you have david bowie uh yeah. who replaced uh was it sting i think sting, was gonna yeah. do it originally mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was some kind of a conflict and uh i guess bowie came and shot his scenes in a day and just so many musicians in the cast it's also kind of like this was scorsese at rock star era like uh mm-hmm. he was literally he had shot uh, some stuff with michael jackson like the bad video yeah. and mm-hmm. you know so it was it was definitely a different era um i feel like it's very bloated uh, that's yeah. my interpretation of it. But it's really interesting. Um, when I went to Catholic school, I only did like a year and a half. I'm not super religious, but w- I went because um, there was some violence in my middle school. And this kid who had a crush on me, like slammed my head in a locker. And Jesus. it was, yeah. So when that happened, my dad was like, we're going to pull her and put her somewhere safer. And smart, so I went smart dad. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, So I went to Catholic school for a year and a half. And when I was there, I remember my confirmation teacher giving me like, it was almost like a romance novel, essentially, um, but like for teens, Mm -hmm. the story of Mary and Mm -hmm. how that all happened and trying to humanize the biblical um, figures. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what this is. It's Scorsese really trying to get to the root of religion he's somebody who wanted to be a priest originally um i think i can't remember if he actually started seminary or not it's it's something he has in common with schrader but schrader was a dutch calvinist mm-hmm. um so but i did hear that he made this movie because he wanted to understand jesus more and mm-hmm. then by the end of it he was actually a little more conflicted and more confused about his own attitudes which was was fascinating yeah yeah i think i think that plays really well in in the film too i think that you kind of go into it thinking that it's going to be a certain kind of thing whether it's going to be you know this like sort of heroic lionization of who jesus was the kind of traditional jesus that you would expect or like a a rock star like anarchic jesus and it does both of those things, which I think is real, like a really interesting like dichotomy with it. And Defoe plays that balance so well. I agree with you. I think that it's a little bit bloated. I definitely kind of lose attention. My attention span yeah. drifts a little bit during like the middle sections middle. of it. But then, mm-hmm. then there the are moments of it. Great. The end. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> yeah. There are moments of it that really pop. There's like a moment earlier on where he's talking about Defoe as Jesus is talking about about how like he he's mostly his like innate goodness and the fact that he doesn't sin is mostly driven by fear and he's like because he's afraid of god and that he wants to sin he wants to have sex and do crime and like burn down you know villages and like do all this like shit but it's the fear of god that like holds him back and i feel like that speaks a lot like that feels like the schrader coming out the scorsese coming out of and you know i'm sure so many catholics of 
that fear that's instilled of you of something as horrible is going to happen to you if you do anything mm-hmm. wrong. God is always watching. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that I found that really compelling. I felt his his journey through the desert and all of the imagery that we get with that like really compelling. But then yeah, the end I think is where it really like crystallizes for me what's happening with it where we see Jesus is on the cross and then he comes off of it and we see him live out this like rich and mm-hmm. fulfilling life. He reunites with his family. He yep. like foregoes the the mythologizing of him as this religious yeah. figure. And then he discovers that Harry Dean Stanton, who's Harry, De- Harry Dean Stanton's playing? I can't remember. I can't either. Name. Paul, Paul. Paul. Okay. Harry Dean Stanton's playing Paul, and he discovers that Paul has been the one spreading this story that Jesus died on the cross and came back, and Jesus is like, why are you doing that? That never happened, blah, blah, blah. And then he, he, you know, lives out to an old age with his family, and then he goes to God and basically begs him to take him back, to let him die on the cross, because he wants to be the Messiah he misses, the the attention he got from you know this perception of him as the messiah and i totally understand why people who are you know very god-loving god-fearing people would be incensed by that would be furious by this depiction of what they're doing but i think that they do a really tremendous job of humanizing christ and portraying like what mm-hmm. what this person might have actually been like um i i was looking through some of the letterbox reviews and david sims wrote a review that basically um Describe the film as saying that so many movies depicting Jesus are depicting it as what if Jesus was, what if a God was a man, basically, but Last Temptation of Christ is depicting it as what if a man wanted to be a God. And I find that really interesting. And I think that I, it's a very interesting movie. I don't know if I love it. Um, but yeah, it definitely gave me like a lot to chew on, I think. It really does. Yeah. Reading um, some of this interviews that are available with Scorsese he was talking about for him early on like a key um, way in was the cross and how that's Mm. the the reason why he isn't super excited when he's able to perform these miracles he's almost scared because he's getting closer to not so much the messiah but then he realizes or he might want to be the messiah but then he realizes Mm -hmm. essentially um, it's going to bring him closer to the cross. And Scorsese was also bringing up, like, if he knew that Judas was going to betray it, like, why did he condemn him um, mm-hmm. at the end? And so um, it was raising a lot of um, conflicts within. I think, um, you know, when I actually first saw this movie, it took me forever to be able to track it down. I went to Hollywood video. I don't know if they had that um they did okay where Mm -hmm. you're from but it's like the flip side of blockbuster was hollywood and hollywood carried (laughs) um some of the stuff that blockbuster wouldn't and i remember going and this kid in the early 90s like just told me he said there is a religious group and this was like minneapolis suburbs essentially in the 90s there is a religious group and they all they do is they pool their money and they just constantly rent the film to keep yeah. it out of people's hands. I don't know that he's like, I don't even know that they've watched this movie. <laughs> they've just heard things that are allegedly in the movie. And obviously, I think I can't remember if um, 
like I left my number to call when it was in or if it just happened to be in once when I was there. So there was a miscommunication of who was supposed to check it out next or what what mm. happened with last temptation. <laughs> but I was finally able to see it. And I remember like watching it, like thinking it was going to be something closer to the, you know, Antichrist movie that yeah. you were mentioning before. And it's really not. It's a thoughtful kind of if anything, it's almost too careful in places. Um, yeah. As far as, you know, he doesn't want to overstep or do anything too um, exploitative or, you know, and I think everybody just assumed, well, Mary Magdalene's in it. It's going to be like Sex Scene City or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, Scorsese said he wanted to make sure at the end that when they do consummate their love, um, he's just making love to her to have a child. I mean, they're married, but uh, as he said, I didn't want it to seem like they were just having sex because they wanted to have sex. Mm-hmm. Like he, he really was going for the the old Catholic. This is, you know, the reason for doing it, essentially. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's not as controversial as everyone thinks. Um, yeah. 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 It's crazy to me. It feels so much less explicit than Passion of the Christ, but, yeah. you know, that movie gets put on this pedestal in a weird <laughs> way. And this, I was, um, a couple months ago, I interviewed uh, Walter Hill for his new movie, Dead for a Dollar, that Defoe is in. And I know yeah, yeah. you and Walter Cha are going to be talking about Walter Hill on an upcoming yes. episode, which I'm very excited for. I got Walter's book the other day oh, um, about Hill, which I'm very excited to read. Um, but in doing sort of research about that, um, and I was watching this press conference where Defoe was talking about, he mentioned that it was at the Venice Film Festival where Dead for a Dollar premiered. And he said that um, he remembered when Last Temptation of Christ played at the Venice Film Festival, that the day after it played, Sergio Leone was in the press and saying um, about Last Temptation, he said, this is not the face of our Lord. This is the face of Satan about Defoe. (laughs) Which is just, I mean, that's... I feel like to me, that would be, that's something to put like frame and put on a pedestal, Sergio Leone calling you the face of Satan. But it's, it's also, I feel like not representative of what Defoe's doing in the movie at all. Mm -mm. Like it, you could see coming as somebody who's, you know, been introduced to Defoe as like a villain and you would maybe expect that, that face to be used in some sort of like villainous way. But it's, I, it's one of his most sensitive performances, I think. And there is such a poetry to what he's doing there and such Mm -hmm. like a, a connection with the earth and the world and with his spirit. And I think it's really just a beautiful performance. I think, you know, it's, he definitely stands out as being the best part of it, the most consistent part of it too, where even those moments where you kind of like falter on it a little bit, Defoe is the through line that I think keeps you connected to it. Really? And that's such a good point, um, bringing up the spirituality because that's another, (laughs) we're going with S's today. There's, there's a sexuality (laughs) with Defoe and there's also a spirituality we see in some of the Ferrara uh, mm. collaborations and mm-hmm. some of the other films that we're going to talk about yes well next bypassing the 90s which saw him branching more into mainstream or big studio efforts and becoming a household name all while still maintaining his great reputation as an actor's actor and continually stealing focus from stars of some of his ensemble works like we mentioned before clear and present danger or the english patient 
We're now mm. going to venture into the early aughts. Here we have the movie that introduced him to a whole new generation with his great villainous 2002 turn in Sam Raimi's excellent Spider-Man, as well as his very minor but memorable supporting role as a German member of Bill Murray's filmmaking team in Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, which was released two years later. Two very fascinating, quirky, fun, and memorable performances that I think pair pretty well together. So Mitchell, what are your thoughts on these roles and movies? Yeah, when when we were deciding what we wanted to do, you had mentioned that you were doing Schrader with Megan. So Schrader was kind of off the, at least the directed Schraders were a little bit like off the table, which I'm I'm very excited for that episode. You know how much I love Schrader. Um, (laughs) And, but I wanted to figure out like a, um, a group of films that we could talk about that had like a real spread of not only the type of characters that he played, but also the type of movies that he was in. And yeah, these two really stand out as being very distinctive ones that you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be in when he first did them and now Mm -hmm. are like very associated with him. Yeah. Life Aquatic. It's a, it's a pretty small role, but he's built up this relationship with Wes Anderson where Mm -hmm. he's done small roles in several of his movies now. And Spider-Man Spider-Man is was the first time that I had seen him. You mentioned introducing him to a new generation. I was mm-hmm. 12 when Spider-Man came out. It was the first, I'm sure the first time that I had seen him in a movie. I remember I was in this art club in middle school and the the main reason that I joined the art club was because the teacher who ran it took everybody in it to the movies every Friday. Nice. Um, and I just wanted somebody to take me to the movies. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the first ones that we did was we saw we went and saw Spider-Man on opening night. And I just remember, like, it's so weird to think about it now, what Spider-Man did on its like opening weekend. The fact that it was the first movie to gross over $100 million in opening weekend, like it was the highest grossing movie of all time or the highest opening weekend of all time, at least at that time. And now, like, the superhero thing is just so like every other month there's one coming out. And yeah. it's it's so weird to rewatch the first spider-man now after seeing like the marvel stuff and whatever even the the last spider-man that defoe comes back in um the original the 2002 sam raimi spider-man really feels like a movie which i don't think these Mm -hmm. new ones like do at all and it's it's so fun revisiting it because it's like i was watching it and i'm like wow remember what it felt like to actually see scenes in superhero movies like distinct like scenes that are like this yeah. is the thanksgiving scene this is the scene where uh willem dafoe as the green goblin is dressed up as an old lady to trick spider-man into going into this burning building yeah and... very little red riding hood almost yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and it was so fun like i had never really done a lot of research into the this og spider-man before and it was really fun researching the behind the scenes stuff for it for this and specifically researching the Defoe aspect of it for this and finding out that it was the the last movie that he ever auditioned for that he like had to audition for it and was excited to audition for it and it was originally like Billy Crudup was supposed to play Norman Osborn in it which is an interesting choice and I think would have been good but it feels so defined by Defoe at this point and that he like he was very excited about just playing in this you know this new kind of playground for him he you mentioned clear and present danger like he had done blockbusters before mm-hmm. speed 2 obviously oh another gosh. really yeah. big one that he's very fun in and i think is kind I of i need a, to rewatch a... i haven't seen it since the theater yeah 
it's it's a wild movie. Um, and he's <laughs> I mean, he's having so much fun in it. Um, but yeah, like him just doing such a huge blockbuster, and he really wanted to like get into it and just play around. He did. He wanted to do like ninety percent of his own stunts. He did. He got in that suit. He got on yeah, the glider that. that they used yes. for it, and like <laughs> the wire the work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the specific kind of like yoga that he like does in his everyday life, yeah. he utilized for like his movement in it. And I think you really just feel like a guy fully committing to it. And I think that's one of the things too, that I love so much about Defoe that I was thinking about with just like what distinguishes him so much for me, the fact that you can feel in every single one of his performances, no matter what movie it's in, that he just loves doing this. And yep. I feel like it radiates off of him. And you, yeah, you mentioned um, at the top too, that he just like, he loves to work. He just loves yes, he going does. to work every day mm -hmm. and reading interviews with him. That was something that I kept finding. Like people were asking him like why he doesn't do more leading roles. And he would say, I would do more leading roles if like they, the leading roles that were out there were interesting to me, but like yeah. the supporting ones are typically more interesting. And more than anything, I just love working every single day. Like he yep. doesn't want a day off. He doesn't want time off. That's why he's in so many movies on Letterboxd. He's like the most watched actor out of anybody. Oh and my gosh, he's every year. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> I was looking at like my own letterbox stats i saw that he's by far my most watched actor um i've seen him in 63 movies which is like uh, so many but yeah you mentioned he's done over 100 and he really just loves doing it and i feel like especially in something like spider-man you can really feel that like you can feel when people are in those kind of superhero movies for a paycheck right or you can feel yes. tarantino the other day said that thing about how um these days there aren't like movie stars the like the characters captain america is the movie star it's not chris mm -hmm. evans and he got a lot of flack for it i i have feelings about tarantino but i 100 agree with what he yeah. was saying there mm -hmm. and De willem dafoe watching this is a movie star like he is chewing up the scenes there's that scene where he, he's talking to himself in the mirror you're seeing him wrestling yes. with norman it's, osborne it's versus like the Green his Goblet. hamlet moment yes yeah I, that's mm -hmm. exactly I wrote down Shakespearean in it my is. notes when I was watching it and it's so big it's so like old school like golden age Hollywood he's going so big with it and I read that they shot that in one take like yes. they it was shot in one take and then they ended up like cutting around it when with the movie and he um, was kind of bummed about that yeah yeah he, he was not yeah, happy about it's like it. his Brana slash Vincent Price moment yes yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly and it's yeah it's such a fun performance and well I mean we can talk about Life Aquatic too which is fun in a different way but I wanted to ask you before we get into that like kind of what your feelings are about Spider-Man because I wasn't sure when suggesting this I, I feel like you and I maybe are similar and not really vibing with the superhero movies that are like mm -mm. coming out these days are not really interesting to us but I wasn't yeah. sure how you felt about like the Spider-Man of it all because it does feel like such a different beast of a movie I loved the first two Sam Raimi Spider-Man mm -hmm. movies. I thought they were great. What's interesting is when I was doing some research, I read he wasn't officially offered the role, and I don't know if he 100% auditioned, but mm. he was in consideration for the Joker part that Nicholson was given in uh, mm. 89 for Batman. I have a hard time imagining anyone but Jack in that role yeah. because that's a, you know, one of the big early performances I remember seeing on the big screen. Um, but, you know, superhero movies were monster hits there for a while. And mm -hmm. then there was Batman and Robin. 
And then that franchise just kind of tanked. And so they were having trouble getting interest in Spider-Man again. Like nobody wanted to invest in, you know, they thought this fad was completely over. Mm. It was Blade um, that had a bunch of success. And also the X-Men film, like the first one. I don't know if the second one had been released yet. but I think the second one one was 2003. So yeah, like a year after Spider-Man. Yeah. So it was Blade and X-Men essentially that kind of made people look again like, ah, I guess we can do a film with a Marvel character. Let's go for it. And um, I do remember going to see this with the family. It was a packed house, essentially, Mm. when we did see it. And it was, I think, elevated because of there was some good humor in it with um, the Tobey Maguire character. I also think that was an unusual casting. Like, they didn't Mm -hmm. just go with someone too easily dashing who doesn't have any humor. There's not mischief or a twinkle in his eye. And Tobey Maguire had that very well. I also think uh, Kirsten Dunst was a was a good choice there. You know, it wasn't um, somebody who was going to be too. I mean, she's very beautiful, and some of the scenes she's very sexy as well. But you know, it isn't too Vava Boom. She isn't Jessica mm. Rabbit in this thing. Like she has some <laughs> um, girl next door qualities that make it work. And so I think the casting was just so great. But by far the shining light of it all. And of course, we can't go without saying James Franco. This was yeah. at the beginning of his um, ascension, and you know, we started to see him and stuff. So. So it had really good casting, but it was Defoe that you immediately, oh God, and J.K. Simmons is in it too. He's another yeah. one of those, how many movies is J.K. Simmons in every fucking <laughs> movie, essentially. But um, but watching this, you know, back then, and then again, I mean, Defoe is the person you remember the most. He is clearly having the most fun. There's that joke, like, understands the assignment. I mean, mm-hmm. he just sort of like tapped right into it. And uh, I also love that it's rainy because this came not too long after, well, a few years after a simple plan. And so we saw some mm-hmm. dark rainy and then he just had some fun here. And I yeah. think it's really good. Yeah. 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 He's uh, it's, it's so I did see the the Doctor Strange uh, movie that came out this year that Raimi did. And it's like such a different kind of oh, vibe like i i didn't I don't, see it <laughs> don't 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 see okay. it um, i like i saw yeah. some reviews saying that like you can you know it comes alive when you can feel the raimi in it or whatever and i watched the movie and i'm like i don't feel him in like any anywhere in this and it's going back factory and, the marvel films yeah and going back and re-watching the first spider-man like you feel him all over it, it it's yeah. so fun the wrestling scene like the, the bruce campbell cameos and the spider-man movies yes. that he did are so fun but yeah it's it's him like really finding that energy again, like simple plan of a masterpiece of a movie is so yeah, bleak. It's such it like, really a trial is. to get through. And then he did the For Love of the Game, right? The baseball movie oh, with Costner. Oh, that's Coster. right. That was Raimi. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly which Preston, is not Kevin Costner. Yeah. Not a great mm-hmm. film. It's a good film, a, but not, not too Yeah. Great. It's kind of, kind of underrated, but yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like him, like Spider-Man is him, like just getting getting back into it and you can totally mm-hmm. see how he had so much fun and made everybody have so much fun and Defoe like had so much fun that he's the one who requested they brought him back for like a little cameo in the second one yeah and yeah it's it's just so so much fun to watch and I think it really holds up I it almost made me sad watching the kind of climax the the bridge scene where 
uh, the Green Goblin offers Spider-Man the the option of the choice mm-hmm. of saving Mary Jane, Kirsten Dunst, or this like tram full of uh, young children, yeah. and the the scene like it it kind of ends with or the scene itself climaxes with a bunch of New Yorkers on the bridge throwing trash yes. and bricks and everything at the Green Goblin and. Like that, they came up with that scene after 9-11 happened mm-hmm. and to like show New York specifically United. coming together. Yes. Yeah, in community. And it's a really beautiful scene to watch and especially watching mm-hmm. it in 2022 after everything we've seen with the pandemic and yeah. you know, who has been elected president, you know, the mm-hmm. last couple of times and like how, I, especially the pandemic, just like the fact that there's such a difference between how this country for, you know, maybe not the right reasons rallied together around 9-11. And then the pandemic is like the total opposite. Like everybody just completely came apart and you really just feel that spirit in Spider-Man. And it it felt like bittersweet. Um, But again, it's like a scene that feels like a scene this is i'm watching a scene in a movie i'm watching yes. the climax of a These blockbuster like movie yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's it's yeah it's wild but yeah defoe is having so much fun which i think does transition well into life aquatic because it is like that one i wanted to pick because he doesn't do a lot of out and out comedies but when he does he's he's having such a good time like just as much of a good time he's so much in it he's playing mm-hmm. this german dude he's doing an accent he somehow makes himself look and feel smaller than he is like he he feels so like small and i think that fits really well with the character because the the real arc the emotional arc for that character is that owen wilson comes in um, as Steve Zizou's like long lost yes. son and Defoe's character feels very like put out by that because he feels like he is Steve Zizou's like adopted son and yep. that's kind of the crux of what that character is like you said like it is a small part he's definitely not the lead he's not even the you, you know the co-lead like he is in Spider-Man but he really makes like every moment count and he's so he's just having a blast in it and you can tell that like like he's talked about how doing Wes Anderson movies, but especially Life Aquatic, feels a lot like working in theater that like mm-hmm. you go in without really having like an awareness of what exactly you're doing. He just kind of constructs everything and you're kind of just doing the job that your characters would supposed to be doing. And you don't even know if you're like going to actually be in the scene or not. It's almost like Malik in a way. Like you don't know if you're going to end up in the scene when it's like on screen, but it's all there. Everybody's just kind of working around. And you can feel like why he would be really into like that energy of working on a Wes Anderson set and why he's come back to him for what he did Grand Budapest. And then he was in French Dispatch as well, I think. But they're all kind of small parts, but they're yeah. also they're also distinct. They all really pop. And yeah, it's, it's just really fun to watch him in that that kind of Amelia. Yeah, it's like kind of that theater troupe energy. Mm-hmm. Um, this summer when I went to LA to see a bunch of friends, I met up with, um, an actor who had just worked with Defoe in a movie that isn't released yet. And so again, I'm not sure if it's on the record, off the record, so I'm not going to name the actor, but he was saying, um, that he did a couple scenes with Defoe and he said, it has to come from the Wooster group and that, mm-hmm. um, kind of theater mentality. So sometimes when you do scenes and it's, they're not the ones on camera, then when the camera is on you, you don't get that same level mm-hmm. of energy 
And he said he is such an unselfish actor, Willem Dafoe, that he actually gives more energy or is even bigger when the camera isn't on him Mm -hmm. because he's so excited and he wants you to do well. And he's actually really listening and really engaged in what you're doing. And he said it was just such a cool experience. He said, not that I doubted that's what it would be like with Willem (laughs) Dafoe. But he said it was it like exceeded all, you know, his expectations. He said, and I'm somebody who remembers like seeing him in the Wooster Group um, productions back in the 80s and 90s. Like Defoe actually kind of stayed with this group until the early aughts, I think. And then he got too busy or I'm not sure what happened there. But yeah, so it was really kind of cool to see. And that's sort of the same energy that um these Wes Anderson movies they're all ensemble pieces and it's kind of like you know there are no small parts only yeah yeah yeah, exactly and that's what every single part um you know forms the bigger engine essentially or the car that is the film and you need all of those when it comes to Life Aquatic this is one I remember really just liking the first time I saw it I just I didn't Mm. get it at all um I kind of believe that I've enjoyed a bunch of Wes Anderson movies since, but I feel like he did his best work when they were co-written with Owen Wilson, like his first three films. They just, they feel like they had more heart and more soul and just felt a little more in touch with what it is to be a human. And I'm kind of thinking in retrospect, maybe that was Owen who actually said he considers himself a writer first and an actor second, which I thought was fascinating. But Mm. um, so Life Aquatic, I hated it then. Then when I saw it again a few years later, I liked it a little more. So each time I've seen it, this might be the fourth <laughs> time or so. I like it a little bit more each time. I think this is the time, you know, by that sort of yardstick, this is the time that I've liked it the most. I think a lot of that has to do with the, um, you know, Portuguese um, language songs of David Bowie, the covers by the actor. Uh, who was in City of God, who played Ni- Knockout Ned. I might be butchering mm. his name. Is it Seu Jorge? I, I think say. so, yeah. Like Seu or Seu Jorge. Yeah. He is great. He plays, you know, all of these wonderful, I can't even imagine how much that would have cost to get the rights <laughs> yeah, to play all right, these yeah. David Bowie songs in Portuguese, but it's beautiful because who isn't a sucker for a man on an acoustic guitar? I mean, that's yeah. like, yeah, one of my big <laughs> things. And, um, so I loved that, you know, you have the the rep uh, company, you've got Bill Murray, you have um, all of the people that we normally see in Wes Anderson movies, and they're all yeah. great. Defoe with the German accent, again, he's just kind of relishing the little things. I saw an interview with him where he was saying... Um, you know, and it is an actorly thing to love your your costumes. Like De Niro is a process guy when he gets mm-hmm. in the costume. That's when it comes to life or the accent or, you know, when you find that little way in. And Defoe loves the um, artifice, like when you actually can put on things or be very mm-hmm. different from who you are as a person. And so you can kind of tell with this one, like as soon as he got maybe the hat, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that accent, like he was home free. I think he was filling in for somebody. I can't mm -hmm. remember. Oh, he said he didn't want to name the actor, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He like wasn't, he like, uh, Wes Anderson saw him in like a play and like yeah. they like hung out after and were like, you know, we should really do something together. I'm about to do this movie, but I cast everybody. So maybe we can do something in like three or four years. Mm -hmm. And then like a couple weeks later, he got a call from Wes that like somebody had to drop out and Defoe got to fill in. But Defoe didn't want to name the actor, especially because Defoe said that the actor dropped out to do like a paycheck role in a really big movie that would did not like go well was not yeah. received well so he didn't want to name the actor which yeah. again speaks to Insult his to spirit yeah. yeah yeah exactly like he i love i love what your friend said about working with him like that's so mm -hmm. beautiful to hear and it does speak like so well to uh who he is in general like obviously we don't know him um but like no, yeah he, I know some people who know him pretty yeah. well, though, and said he is like the nicest guy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I have a friend who um, interviewed him for he was the friend was interviewing Ferreira, I think, for like a, a can um, like the can like program or whatever for one of the films that they did together. And then he ended up kind of interviewing Defoe as well. They like got a cab together and Defoe just wanted to keep talking to like invited him back to the place that he was staying at. And That's like awesome. the, the interview didn't end up getting published anywhere or anything like that. Um, But he's just like invited this dude into his home to like hang out and talk. And he just loves talking. I don't know if you listen. Did you listen to um the A24 podcast that he did with Isabella Rossellini recently? No. It's, it's so it's so sweet. It's so fun to listen to the two of them together um, because they like go like way, way back uh, to the David Lynch days. Yeah. But he like he starts it off by just saying something about like how like I think she was wasn't sure how the conversation was supposed to be structured because they were doing it for the podcast and everything and like if they were supposed to kind of go into like specific topics or whatever and Defoe's just like who cares about any of that shit yeah. like we're just two people having a conversation I just want to have a conversation with you and like they talk about like halfway through or not even like a third of the way through she like has to go for a minute because she has like bread in the oven that she like is getting out and he just invites this like wonderful like conversational quality out of her and i feel like you get that out of like he probably gets that out of anybody i've jen i've tried like at least two times to get an interview with Willem dafoe i pitched so hard um and i haven't landed it yet uh not yet but i'm gonna get there i've interviewed ferrera yeah. i've interviewed walter hill um okay. I'm, You're getting closer. I'm, I'm making i'm making my way in okay i'm making my way in. we will it's, get it's, this happening yeah it's putting yeah, it out it's in my, the universe yes exactly number one number one on my yeah. bucket list is the interview will oh. but he he just seems like he has such a generosity of spirit and so i think that comes mm -hmm. through yeah and everything that he does he i was watching um a video where he talked about like acting being like being a circus performer and he at the same time he was like this was from a few years back and he was like you know they never make they don't make movies about the circus anymore i would love to like be in one and then a couple years later he was in nightmare alley for mm -hmm. del toro last year where he was a circus performer in the movie and yeah he like he also likens being an actor to being a creature um and mm -hmm. just like really giving himself to the director and that's why he loves working with auteurs yeah like the people that we've been talking about because he just loves being like he describes it as a color on their canvas and just being like moved around under by their them. control and, yep 
Exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I feel like you definitely get that. Like Wes Anderson for sure is that I'm similar to you with Wes where like I, I've kind of gone through phases with him where yeah. when I first um, was introduced to his stuff, it was like Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore and Bottle Rocket. And I loved those, was obsessed yes. with him. And then mm-hmm. I kind of went through a phase of not really liking his stuff as much. And mm-hmm. then I came back around a little bit, but now I'm in a place where like you, where I love those first three because they have that humanity and that heart to them. Yeah. And it kind of loses me after that. Um, to a degree. There's still stuff that I really oh, appreciate yeah. about Moonrise them. Moonrise Kingdom is great. Yeah, Moonrise yeah. Kingdom especially. Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think. Is I think one that's that, very good. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one has a real warmth to it that I like. But those first three feel very human. And I think you might be right about the though and Wilson of it all. Because he, he too, has always been somebody who has a very, like, innate warmth and kind of yeah goodness yeah yeah yeah, that's a really great word um to him that i think shines through in in those earlier ones um but yeah life aquatic i mean it's still really fun and it's really fun to watch defoe in it i almost considered going with a johnny english reborn as the the comedy one because that he's a villain (laughs) and he's very big i've never seen it (laughs) it's it's it's, i'll I'll also rent it yeah, I'm not like a, I'm not a Rowan Atkinson. Like I, no. I never was like a Mr. Bean, like Johnny English mm-hmm. kind of person. But just for Defoe, it's like a oh, blast yeah. to watch. It's kind of like watching, um, in a weird way, like watching the Boondock Saints, which is like not a movie that I like at all. Oh, like, no. I cannot no. stand that movie. But Defoe is just doing the most in it. And you can tell, like with everything, like, you can tell he's having such a blast in it. Uh, and it's fun to watch. Yeah, I think the best actors are the warmest people who are very curious about other human beings and what makes mm. them tick. And you can kind of see that, like the humanity um, or the just soulfulness or interest in, yeah, in what how we're connected. And you get that with Defoe. Um, I know that um, I just recently was joking to uh, an actor friend. I was saying, you know, the thing about actors is you meet them the first time within five minutes. It's, Let me tell you everything about my life. Like my first mm. sexual experience, my first, you know, like the most traumatic thing that ever happened. I'm going to tell you in two seconds. And, you know, actors just have this ability. And uh, he was saying it was probably because you need to be able to bond really, really fast fast with the yeah. other person to know can you trust them what is it going to be like to act opposite this person uh possibly fail in front of them you know it's a real trust um thing that you have to do but also in addition to being able to you know just un- unburden your soul or bond with somebody that fast you also it's a two-way street and you have to be interested in other people and i was comparing it to i said that's what actors are like and then me and my writer friends it's like you meet them and two weeks later, you'll find out, oh, you don't have any siblings or, you know, like yeah. we're mm-hmm. a little more guarded, <laughs> probably we're too guarded and they're a little more um, just impulsive. And so I was making jokes. Of course, there's exceptions to every rule. There's some really, really shy actors. Gene Hackman has talked about. He is exceptionally yeah. shy and De Niro. De Niro is a, De Niro's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, there are. But with uh, Defoe, you know, he loves people. And he loves sharing um, our good friend, for people listening, Blake Howard, his best friend, Maria Lewis. I don't know if you know this story. During the early days of the pandemic, she interviewed uh, Defoe and it was Ah. over Zoom. And, um, you know, I think he said or she said, you know, how's it going where you are? And he answered the question. Then he said the same thing. And she, I think, had just broken a bone or something. And, you know, wow. things were looking very dour. And she was under lockdown in Melbourne and it was it was not yeah. good. And so she just honestly, without even thinking, went, 
pretty grim, babe. And he, <laughs> he like completely, and she's like, I called Willem Dafoe babe. And <laughs> he just burst out laughing and just was like, he immediately sat closer to the monitor mm-hmm. and then was completely like, okay, I can jive with this person because mm-hmm. it isn't too rehearsed or, you know, like she is willing to just be impulsive and in the moment. That's Maria. That's why we love her. But yeah, like not gonna lie, pretty grim, babe. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's one of my favorite uh, Defoe in a nutshell story. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, I was just talking with writer some writer friends yesterday about like interviewing actors and how like there is this weird like cordialness to like the opening of like doing an yeah. interview where you like ask them how they're doing. They ask you, and you both lie and say like, yeah, good. Oh yeah, you know I mean, whatever. It's great. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but that that's so great. Like the and that's the thing that we were talking about is like wanting to be more comfortable in our own skins to just mm-hmm. be like honest and like have like yeah. a that space to kind of breathe and just be like, yeah, I'm not you know honestly not great. Like, <laughs> yeah, things are tough right now. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And speaking of things being tough and pandemics and end of world type uh, mm-hmm. issues, we have segue. <laughs> yeah our next one. Uh, lastly, we have two films made in the last decade that you and I have both written about respectively in the form of 444, Last Day on Earth from writer-director Abel Ferrara in 2011 and his 2017 Oscar-nominated performance in Sean Baker's coming-of-age movie, The Florida Project. Since I know 444 especially means so much to you personally, and I love your essay, I'm going to be sure to link to it when I post this. I will let you start us off on Recent Defoe with that one, including for those who haven't read your very moving piece, why the film spoke to you so strongly. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's um it's one that really hit me hard. As you mentioned, like it is about um apocalyptic themes. It is uh, specifically about, you know, the the end of the world is coming. Yeah. And Defoe plays um an actor, I think. And we don't mm-hmm. really get to see his career, but he plays an actor and his partner played by Shannon Lee in the movie is a painter and the movie is basically just them in their apartment together and knowing that the end of the world, like they have less than 24 hours to live and just kind of seeing how they spend the that time together. And it's a really interesting movie in that it doesn't, you know, so many end of the world movies are about you want to accomplish one last thing or you want to try to stop the end of the world or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's really about like the the world is coming to an end. What are you going to do? And for these people, it's more or less what they normally do. Like they're just in their apartment together and she's painting and he's mm-hmm. kind of walking around. He's watching the news a lot. He's yeah, watching, you know, Skyping consuming people. media. Yeah. yeah. And wanting to talk to to his kid and, you know, goes to visit some friends at some point. And yeah, it's just, I think the, that kind of pedestrian quality to it really spoke to me, but even more so, I I discovered the movie um, towards the beginning of the pandemic. I think kind of summer 2020. So like uh, we were enough into it to where okay. it was the realization that like this isn't going to be over in two weeks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to be a lot longer and having that kind of indetermined quality about how long it was going to be. And for me, as I get into in that peace like i i'm immunocompromised i at one point in my life was like in bed for like three years because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and 
like I'm better now, but I still have a real fear of the pandemic because of how strongly it can affect people who are immunocompromised. So I've still, you know, we're, yeah, exactly. So we're almost three years into it now. And I still like, I haven't gone to the movies. I don't Mm -hmm. go out. Like I see my partner. um, I see my partner now because I know that they're like being safe um, with how they treat things and everything. But other than that, I don't really see friends or anything in person because everybody has kind of had to adjust to living like their normal lives again and Mm -hmm. normal life quote unquote doesn't really suit uh me and like what what I need to take care of myself so it's it's been a really isolating experience and a really like soul-crushing experience at times and I mean for one I'm very grateful that zoom is like such like a prominent thing now and i've been able yeah to, it's been such a lifeline mm-hmm. yeah exactly i've been able to meet people like you and like all of our friends that like i've met online through twitter and whatever and then doing yeah. podcasts and doing you know these things on video which is really really wonderful because it allows me to have like a sense of community and yeah, connection social life. That, uh-huh. yeah exactly exactly and but yeah this movie 444 last day on earth i think hit me at this point where it was like even if the end of the world is coming there are still things to appreciate that are out there that you can like hang on to and there are still things to have hope for even if it is just holding on to the person that you love or skyping with the person you love there's this really beautiful scene in the movie where um a man they order some food and a young man comes and delivers the food Mm -hmm. and it's like it's it's so odd because you're also like the end of the world is coming within you know 24 hours and this kid is still just doing his job like he's delivering food yeah for people. i don't think he had anywhere else to go yeah exactly exactly yeah. yeah and and so defoe's character gives him a tip you know brings him in which again like the the money thing it's like what yeah, good is keeps that giving him more just, money yes yeah and then he asks him if there's anything else he can do for him and, and the kid like it's clear like english is not like he's not mm-hmm. uh an english speaker um sh- like a strong english speaker and he just asks uh for skype he asks you know if he can use a video call and if brings him into his home and lets him use skype and he calls like we don't there's no subtitles um, so we don't know yeah. like, the details of what the conversation mm-hmm. is that this young man has with other uh, people on the other end of the Skype, but just from like body language, we can kind of intuit that it's probably his family who mm-hmm. he's not able to see. Maybe they're in another country or something. And I think it was it just, Vietnam, it's, they said, yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. And it, yeah, it speaks to that sort of, again, to the Spider-Man, you know, seeing the climax, like it speaks to that community, that idea of like looking out for each other. I think it, it actually connects really well to the Florida Project because Defoe's talked a lot about Florida Project and how much he loves that movie and how it captures that idea of social responsibility and what we kind yes. of owe to each other as just human beings on this earth. And I think 444 really touched that uh, nerve for me. Ferreira is a director who is you know, he started out as this kind of like wild child. He directed mm-hmm. adult movies and then got into like yep. exploitation with Driller Killer, Miss 45 and stuff. And then did like some more mainstream stuff with like Bad Lieutenant and King of New York, which were mainstream, but still like very harder. At oh, edge. God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then he after 9-11, uh, weirdly enough, he like was just very disconnected with America and with who he was. He got sober after being an addict for decades. Yes. And he got into Buddhism, right? He got into Buddhism. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he moved to Italy where he still lives. And mm-hmm. his movies now 
have a very spiritual quality to them, a real attempt to um, grapple with the severity of what the world is while still yep. wanting to find optimism in it. I interviewed him last year for this movie, Zeros and Ones, that he did with Ethan Hawke, and it it captured that same kind of thing. And that's what I talked to him a lot about in the interview about him capturing these two uh, like notions of the world where like the world is shit and horrible and we're all going to die, but also like something as simple as getting coffee with a friend can be a lifeline that can be a reason yeah. to get up and like enjoy the world. And I think, it, I think it's something that Schrader um, has really gotten in touch with as well, even as early as something like light sleeper, but especially in his more mm-hmm. recent movies. Um, and yeah, so for, for 444 last day on earth, really that meant a lot to me, especially seeing it at that time where I felt as low as I probably had felt in a decade where I was back into that space of being locked up in my home and like isolated and not seeing anybody or knowing when I was going to see anybody again. Yeah. Oh, there's so much there to to discuss for sure. Uh, This was the first time I saw this film and it's interesting. You said you watched it during the pandemic. For me, that was, well, I'd already seen seeking a friend at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I watched it again early in almost like gallows humor early Mm -hmm. into the lockdown. And I found that one far more profound than I was expecting I would. Uh, I've watched it a handful of times uh, since it started because it's kind of like if Sofia Coppola directed a pandemic movie or something like (laughs) the end of the world, that's what it is because it's about the importance of human relationships and connecting and how people can surprise you and somebody you just meet um, can suddenly feel like family, essentially. And so there is something beautiful about that. Um, the filmmaker for sure you were bringing up with with this um, and the filmmaker's uh, trajectory. I really mm-hmm. loved the movie they made a couple years ago, Tommaso. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. that was exceptional. I thought I remember I put that one on my best list for that year. I did like a top 30 and that was definitely mm-hmm. in like the 20 to 30 range. You kind of like arbitrarily, you know, your first five essentially, <laughs> yeah. and then just any you of them You know, one rotate. through five. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so that was Tommaso for me. I thought this was very good, very interesting, um, you know, but as far as uh, talking about um, the Defoe being almost like a stand-in for what Abel Ferrara and his changes over the years and what, um, it, you know, how he went from being like uber macho or masculine or into the harder mm-hmm. edge to changing. Um, I'm somebody in my family, the the male Johans uh, families have tempers like historically. And mm-hmm. then when they get older, they kind of mellow like uh so my grandpa for example i always knew as this like gentle man and you know my dad would tell stories about him you know screaming and throwing things and, and you're like oh okay so and i mean i love my dad but he has his moments where he would you know throw things and do very macho mm-hmm. things and so but now that my dad is you know getting into his 70s he's super mellow and my brother in his 40s is starting that sort of gone from being super like the temper to going down there and so I kind of saw that with uh, the filmmaker like his his first 
half of his uh, career and his life there. You see the, the anger, the sex, the, yeah. you know, and then they start to get a little more chill or a little more like, you know, things don't bother you. They roll off your back a little more. You don't have to, yeah. somebody looks at you the wrong way. You don't have to clock them. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> and so, um, so you start to see that a little bit with this uh, director. Um, I thought uh, Defoe was really good. I thought the chemistry, you know, I also like, I appreciated that because he's acting opposite somebody so young. Um, Mm -hmm. This this very young woman, like there's a line about like she's a teenager, essentially. I mean, she isn't. I mean, early 20s has to be. But yeah, um, but, you know, there is such a gap in the ages that I I did appreciate um, them addressing that a little bit, that it was something that had happened with uh, his past relationship and where he was as a man and what was important to him. Um, I am not somebody who gets into the dreaded age gap discourse because people are people so like who the hell cares how old you know whatever as long as they're adults but i did appreciate that in this film that they did kind of address it a little bit because um you know she didn't not that these people were super well defined overall i think they were almost supposed to be you could apply any characteristic you want as you're watching it Mm -hmm. yeah but i thought she didn't really have that much to define her and so um, we needed a little bit more explanation. Um, and I think also the reason this movie probably works as well as it does is somebody like Defoe at the heart of it. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. I agree that kind of the one thing that maybe holds it back a little bit for me is the her her character feels a little bit um, a little bit poorly defined. There's a scene where he's um, talking to like his ex wife yes. over skype yeah. and she she sees it and like lash like she freaks out and it's yeah. like you know i mean you know anybody could have i like we don't we don't have their backstory or anything no. so there could be very valid reasons for it but it feels like it comes out of nowhere and a little bit yeah and then she wants to call her mom and you're like how young is this woman you know i mean yeah, of course yeah, people yeah. want to call their mom and they're upset or something yeah. but but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I, I wish that there was a little bit more there. But yeah, I think that Defoe, the Defoe, I love that you mentioned Tommaso because I think that's a wonderful movie as well. I love that the stuff that they've been doing together is really beautiful. Siberia is a great movie. Pasolini is a great movie. Um, and it feels like Defoe just kind of gets him. I was reading some interviews yeah. about when they did Siberia together, which was a couple years ago, um, that it just feels like there's something like intuitive about their working relationship at this point where they don't really need to communicate that much they just have like that rhythm to each other and it does feel like there's a reason that Ferrer keeps choosing him as like Mm -hmm. his stand-in for movies that are about like his own life and his own relationships and everything Mm -hmm. and yeah I just love that relationship between the two of them yeah the florida project is i think one of my favorite um film performances and films that defoe has made over the years um he plays bobby who uh, is the manager of this hotel and i love that he sort of it's not his job to really you know get involved in the lives of the residents but you know they can't really be residents or else the the hotel will get in trouble or it's you know these people on the outskirts of society essentially who are basically living day by day in this uh, week to week they're paying rent mm-hmm. um and bobby is the manager but he can't not get involved when he sees these kids 
who are neglected, they're running wild. Um, you know, there's a sweet scene early on involving hide and seek where he, he lets them hide and then he's like having fun with them there. But then if they cross that line, yeah, you know, there's there's also the ice cream cone, the like ice don't cream, let yeah. it drip in the, <laughs> in the lobby. There's stuff that feels fully improvised, like when he goes out and he shoes away uh, birds. Oh you know, my God, like we yeah. got we got guests coming, which is just very sweet because you can imagine Defoe doing that. I wrote extensively for um, DVD Netflix about the scene where he sees um, a man come onto the property and approach these children, and everything about this guy just seems wrong. When Defoe catches him as Bobby, he's on a ladder and he's painting. And you can kind of just imperceptibly, again, that tone, uh, you see it in his eyes as he clocks this guy. You can see fear for the first time with Bobby, and you don't ever really see fear with him. Um, mm -hmm. And that he drops the paint can. He's a pretty unflappable guy, but, you know, that kind of signals something is off. He gets down the ladder and he goes. And what I love so much about that scene is he takes the man away from the kids very calmly. Mm -hmm separates the this weird man who does not belong on the property and gets him up you know the kids know something is off but mm. they don't quite know because they're innocent still and i thought that was a really important part of that whole scene is we don't he doesn't need to be like the macho hero in front of the kids essentially mm. it's just i need to take care of this get this guy away and i love that about bobby and it says so much i think the way that defoe plays it yeah, oh, I, I yeah, I love Bobby. This is definitely like maybe my favorite Defoe performance. It's certainly like top three, I think. Oh yeah. Um and yeah, I mean I, I actually uh pulled a quote from your your piece for DVD on Netflix um oh. about, about this where you said, We know almost nothing about his life beyond his role as the manager of the Magic Castle, but an understated turn where so much is said solely by by the light of a concentrated look in his eyes, Defoe ensures that that all we need to know about who Bobby is as a human being is right there on the screen. And I thought that was so perfectly said because it is like oh, that scene you. that you spend a lot of time talking about in that piece with with the man, like we understand exactly who he is through behaviors, through actions that he does. We don't need to know, like we get a little glimpse of his home life with the yep. Caleb Landry Jones scene where he comes in and like, that's his son. And you can tell there's like a, a friction mm -hmm. there. Um, Caleb Andrew Jones mentions like communicating with his mother, Defoe's, mother. you know, presumed mm -hmm. ex-wife and he's Defoe. Bobby's not happy about that at all. No. And like, so you can feel that there is like backstory there and there is friction. He feels like a human being. He doesn't feel like this like Pollyanna mm -hmm. kind of character who's just this like no. beam of light. Mm -mm. Um, But he has such a lightness to him. He is so tender. And, but he like, yeah, he mixes so well the, the kind of exasperation and frustration of being the manager of any hotel where you're dealing with, you know, these um, tenants like this. And especially with so many kids running around yeah. who are unsupervised and just having to deal there, like the kids knock out the power and he has to spend all day figuring out how to get the power back on. Yeah. But and it burns him out. But then he gets the power back on and you have that moment of him that's in the trailer where he's walking away from, you know, the the hotel and people say, you know, we love you, Bobby. And he turns around and he has such a light in his eyes when he says, mm -hmm. you know, I love you too. And yeah, it feels like he, he genuinely 
believes that when he says it and it almost uh, seems like he's like saying it towards the hotel too that he like loves yep. the hotel and he just loves doing his job and he yep. loves being there for these people the the scene with Mason Blair is a really great example of i think the the dimensions of the character where Mason Blair the the film heavily focuses on a, a mom and her very young daughter and she ends up um, working as a sex worker to continue paying for the room that she's in and um Mason Blair plays a character who from what we understand she sort of uh she stole, stole his yes. his bands to get into it's Disney World or Disneyland yes, I can Disney never remember yep. Disney World okay uh, I can never remember which one is which <laughs> and so she steals his bands in order to be able to sell those to, you know, make money to be able to keep paying for this room. And he comes back the next day, having realized that she stole his bands and he's like banging on her door, shouting at her, demanding that she give him back. And Bobby comes up and is basically asking what's going on. And this man is like threatening her and Bobby can tell what is going, what happened, what is going on. And he is so protective of these people that his response is to tell this guy basically like, you know, I, uh, he, in not so many words, he says, I know what you were doing here. You have these, you have four bands here. Clearly you are here with your family. I'm sure they wouldn't want to know what you were doing here. And the guy kind of looks at Mason Blair's character, like looks down on him as he's like storming away. Um, But it's yeah, that, these this tourists element. that come from other places. It's yeah. about people who don't, even though everybody, it, it's kind of a motley crew of people, it's mm-hmm. the people from outside. Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Transactional. Yeah. And it really is. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's really like Bobby has this, like he's playing this kind of father figure as he did in, yep. as devoted in Platoon too, you know, he yep. and like so many other movies, it's like surrogate father of these people where he is, he has rules. He has certain lines that they can't cross, but he also is super protective of them. The the whole element of he has he to work out this deal with, you know, a neighboring motel where yes. they'll house oh, that whole the tenants yeah. for like a week so that he doesn't, as he says, like establish residency, I think, mm-hmm. because it's like against the law or whatever. Yeah. And but he goes out of his way to move them out and to, you know, work out this deal to uh, to keep them there and to keep them safe and it's it's really a gorgeous performance and i think that it is the best performance to point people to who maybe know defoe more so as like a villain or whatever because it is i think it's his most human performance and i think too the thing that i, I love so much about it and about the performance specifically is that he's working almost entirely with like first time actors, people that Sean Baker Mm -hmm. discovered on Instagram or kids who are acting for the first time. And you never feel any kind of dissonance with that. Like, I think, I think Nomadland is like a movie that I like, but one of the things that really holds me back on Nomadland is that it feels like Francis McDormand and David Strathairn are actors and mm-hmm. they, they just don't a. feel right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly and they just don't feel right with all of the real people kind of playing themselves in nomadland but defoe feels completely at home he feels completely like in the moment he doesn't yeah. feel at odds at all even though this is wilm defoe uh, an actor who had been nominated for three oscars before this got his four yep. for this like it doesn't feel like he is in any kind of other realm as these people because he is so 
into just figuring out who this guy is. He's talked a lot about being a task-oriented actor, and Mm -hmm. I think that speaks to him being very in the moment and just kind of going through each scene with, like, what is my character doing in this scene? How do I establish doing the scene? And it keeps him really in the moment because that's how people act in real life. You know, we are doing whatever we're doing in the moment, especially when you're playing, like, a very blue-collar kind of guy like this. Like, he's just going through his day he's at that motel all day every day basically just doing his job yeah when we see him at night just like slide into a neighboring room and sleep there you realize like Mm -hmm. he is there 24 7 and that's probably why there is a wedge with his own personal life or like you know this hotel like you you mentioned beautifully said you know when he says i love you too almost to the building it is like this has been his most significant relationship, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's that but- beautiful moment, that beautiful shot where he's like taking, he's smoking a cigarette like over the railing, and like it's yeah. the the sun sets and the lights come on with the motel, and it's just framed really beautifully. And you feel him; he he clearly has like a pride in what he's doing, even though it takes a lot out of him. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of emotional work. He clearly has like a pride in what he's doing and a pride in the place that he's sort of, you know, made this community in. Yeah, that invigorates him. And you brought up the first time actors. It kind of has a little bit of a feel of like a Ken Loach or a neorealist sort of feel. Mm -hmm. And I think it invigorates him as an actor because he doesn't know what what a kid is going to say next or how to play opposite, um, especially like that whole uh just emotionally gut-wrenching sequence with the little girl where they are going to separate her from her mom um and how she runs over to bobby or like bobby is trying to kind of put his body between uh what is going on and um you know like well what is going i don't know honey or he's just trying to figure out how would you naturally relate to a kid going through something like that and i think um yeah it's it's a very beautiful tender performance but there's also um like some edge there he isn't just a saint it isn't you know um a sergeant elias or a jesus type role although even in those roles there there's a little edge there mm-hmm. for each one like sergeant elias is the one who says we're going to lose this war we've been getting our asses kicked so it's about time mm-hmm. or we've been kicking asses it's about time that we got ours kicked um so there's always kind of a world weariness to uh, a Defoe character. So we pointed out uh, he's sexy, he's spiritual, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a, he's a contemporary guy of society and yeah. uh, he knows that there's good and there's bad out there. Yeah. Yeah. He he always feels like, like beyond like to just always feeling like every one of his characters is a human being, which I feel yeah. like is in, uh a difficult quality to match that not a lot of actors can manage. Um, he he always feels like a guy who has lived like a full life and you're mm-hmm. coming into it with like an understanding of even if we're not seeing like in Florida Project, I mean, or in, you know, most of the movies we talk Platoon as well, like mm-hmm. we're not seeing the backstory of where he's no. come from and what mm-hmm. his life was like before the snapshot of what we're getting of him, but he feels like he has lived, you know, a whole life leading up to the moments that we're seeing the character. 
For sure. Well, I know we've cited many other movies along the way, but as a refresher, or if there are any others you want to cite that we didn't mention, uh, maybe even other actors, performers, or performances, films that just seem to share Defoe's DNA, what would you like to recommend to listeners who are interested in these movies, um, this type of performance? anything yeah that's that's a really great question i'm looking at my letterbox now just to see just to get a refresher so that it's fresh in my mind of like other his other movies because like light sleeper obviously is the one that i go to the most but when you when you were asking that um the the person who came to mind for me first as like actors who inhabit a similar quality to what i love about defoe steve buscemi is one who i think really has that sort of innate humanity to him and also balances between different things so well. And they obviously, they semi-directed Defoe in Animal Factory, um, yes, and, yes. which is a really underrated movie, I think, a very underseen movie. I'm actually watching it for the first time this week for we're getting the band back together, the Pandemic Movie Club, once for the upcoming weekend and Jordan Harper chose that movie. So yeah. It's, I, I hope that you like it. It's it's a movie cool. that not a lot of people like, but I, I really dig it. And I love Buscemi's like directed movie. Trees Lounge is one of my favorite movies. Oh, I Trees think. Lounge is great. It's yep. so good. And In the Soup just got like a new Blu-ray release. And like his Buscemi's like earlier, like 90s run and like his late 80s with like parting glances and stuff. He's really, really good and obviously worked with um. Ferrer too on King of New York he was in Mm -hmm. in like kind of a small part but yeah I just really love that quality to him of just feeling like not not a not a character actor but like just a human actor who's like super unpredictable I also um I know my friend Soraya the other day was watching Existence for the first time which is a movie Uh where Defoe comes in for like a scene like he's just in it for like a oh, little bit right yeah yeah Cronenberg's yeah, yeah. exist says he plays like a gas station attendant and he's so good in it and it's like such a weird movie where because at that point it came out in 99 so like he was already like Willem Dafoe you know a big kind of name actor and he's only in it for a little bit but it's like he clearly just wanted to work with Cronenberg and like have fun in, in that world and it's really a blast it's, it's it's a great seed it's a great moment but yeah I mean any of his Ferreira movies any of his um, Schrader movies, Autofocused, I think, is one that I oh, saw for the wow. first time yeah. this year. And it's such a great character. It's yes. one of those characters that he he makes you feel so sympathetic towards when it could have been like a so villain. gross. I mean, it is yeah. gross, but like, yeah, it isn't um, just cartoonish. I shouldn't. Yeah, say. yeah, that's, exactly. That's exactly. Right like, phrase. yeah, there's you you are not agreeing with the things that this no, guy is God, doing no. or how yeah. he conducts his life but you feel such a sadness for him too at the same time yeah. and yeah like he just wants a fucking friend and like yes. you know i can definitely just a desperate lonely fucked up guy yeah 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 exactly and yeah i mean that's such a great born on the fourth of july for like another stone yes. like that's mm-hmm. a great one um what about for you are there other ones that we haven't mentioned or i mean if you do you have like actors that you think inhabit like a similar quality i'd, I'd be really interested in hearing oh, what you think about boy. that that's you know it is really hard to to think of other actors that kind of have that vibe that i haven't you know name checked yeah. a million times let me jump over to gosh you know with that many movies i will say i was not a huge fan of uh the lighthouse I will say that one didn't really. I also was. I really. Um, he's fun in it. 
I like I Pattinson's fun in it too. Like they're they're definitely doing the most. Oh um, yeah. But that's a movie that like I you know going into it it's like very clearly like Bergman influence Bergman's like yes. one of my like top five directors but, but like and Defoe and Pattinson who I both I love both of those actors oh yeah black and white they're on they're in a lighthouse on an island the entire movie I was like this is going to be my favorite movie of this year like I'm going to be obsessed with this and <laughs> I know I, right I thought it was kind of I thought it was kind of exhausting and not in the way that it was intended to be exhausting like I really was kind of checking out on it and like I think that it's it's fine um but yeah it was a big disappointment for me i want to give it another shot at some point but sure yeah yeah oh he's in so much um it looks like inside man was another i was trying to think what is a a role it's a small role that he has yeah really small i always forget that he's in it and he really pops when he shows up i love i love that movie though that's one of my favorite yeah um and the uh, La Carre. Oh, A Most Wanted Man? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. He's in that one as well. That's a great you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, too. One of his last Really, ones. really good. A Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. He's also a lot of fun in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. He's yeah. having a ball, clearly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's ridiculous, but he's enjoying it for sure. Shadow of I the Vampire won... is really good. And yeah, it, you, you wrote so well about that one. Oh, so, thank yeah. you. Um, I know that's a role that originally think think Liz Cage was going to take on, mm-hmm. but I thought Defoe was really good in it. Yeah. Affliction. I'm glad you brought that one up. You know, it's interesting. Um, the English patient, I talked about this with Bilga Iberi. I'm not mm-hmm. a huge English patient fan, but it's Juliette Binoche and Willem Dafoe, the supporting people. And there's another mm. actor, I'm blanking on the name, and they are just the most interesting parts of that film, almost yeah. more than, um, you know, Ray Fiennes and, Fiennes uh, and Chris and Scott Thomas. Scott Thomas, yeah, who I, are great actors, but yeah. yeah I totally, yeah. Juliette Binoche and Willem Dafoe, my two favorite answer, my two favorite actors, and they're mostly going to, Naveen Andrews is really great. Naveen Andrews, too. I was blanking on his name. Yes. Yeah, he's so good. And, yeah. um, one one that um I know you and I on the I think on the game, the Cinephile game night that we did that we both kind of bonded over our love. Streets of Fire is the Oh, the he's movie having so much fun in that. So yes. much fun in that. That's a Walter Hill movie. It's uh, such a blast. It's that movie yeah. has my favorite opening scene of all time. And he is <laughs> he's wearing the, like his costumes in that he's wearing he's like the leather daddy in it. He's got like this like leather like overalls on with nothing underneath yeah. at one point. Like he is such a blast in that he kind of acts other people off the screen a little bit in that movie a, li- um, a little like, bit yeah, a yeah, little yeah. powerful in that film uh white sands so even if a movie isn't great he's wonderful in it um mm. mississippi burning although that to me is more about francis mcdormand and gene hackman but yeah mm. he's been in so many wonderful films tom and viv um mm. Basquiat, yeah. I'm just like looking down his credits now, and every five <laughs> like scrolls, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, that movie, that movie, that movie. So what we're saying is, you know, expose yourself to all kinds of great Willem Dafoe performances because they're everywhere. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's. I know one that. Powers. Have you seen Have you seen John Carter? Uh, no, I don't think so. I've never. I haven't seen it either. Um, but I know. Our friends Dan Mecca and Connor O'Donnell, who do the B-Side podcast that we've both been on, they yeah. recently did an episode about uh, Taylor Kitsch and kind of his like 
2012 where he had like john carter battleship and savages oh, and they all john kind of carter i thought you said yeah. john carpenter and i was like oh, the, the director yeah, no i have seen john carter yes okay do you yeah. so they both i haven't seen it before um and i listened to that episode and they both stumped really hard they said that defoe is really good at that it's like a motion capture performance i think and they said okay. he's really good in it but i haven't seen it before and i was curious if you had a take I on i haven't defoe seen in it movie. since it was new Mm-hmm. So I need to revisit it. Yes. Yeah, I got it. I got to check that I was on my list that I wanted to try and check out. Um, but I just didn't didn't get to it. But I want I definitely got to see that at some point. For sure. Well, Mitchell, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's always such a pleasure to talk about movies with you. So come up with some more ideas for season four. I got to ha- have you back a bunch of times for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, very appreciative of you having me back. Always a blast of to course. talk to you. I We had an uh, interaction on Twitter recently about Jeff Bridges in like the 80s. Um, oh, I mentioned right. Cutter's Way and you mentioned Against All Odds. And I was like, maybe we should do like a like early Ooh, Jeff Bridges episode or something at some yeah, point. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And oh my God, fabulous Baker boys. I mean, we can be mm-hmm. here all day now just talking about <laughs> Jeff Bridges, but yes. Yeah, we'll do it. Well, thanks again. I hope you have a good night. Thanks so much. You too. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.